Hello, is finance theory fit for purpose? And how should investors, especially in the developed world, be thinking about emerging markets? I'm Steve Horn at CFA Institute, and I'm joined here today by Dr. Jerome Booth, author of Emerging Markets in an Upside Down World. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Booth. So you claim that finance theory, at least 80% of it, isn't fit for purpose. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, basically, uh, it's caused distortions in asset allocation globally, affecting hundreds of millions of people. Some of the uh, problems in finance theory really go back to the 50s. Um, the assumption that we can ignore uh, covariances between variables and explain their variability in idiosyncratic and index movement alone has created um, you know, some major errors, uh, not least the idea that asset classes can be defined by indices and used as building blocks. Um, I believe indices should not be used at all uh, as proxy weights for asset allocation. They're completely unrepresentative of the sources of income in the global economy, and that's perfectly obvious actually to anybody. Um, we have all sorts of problems with understanding risk. Uh, risk is a complex set of ideas. Most people care much more about large permanent loss than a bit of volatility. And we also confuse risk with uh, uh, uncertainty. I define as a la Frank Knight and Maynard Keynes uh, as uh, uncertainty is, is very different. Risk is where you have random events where you know the probability distribution, therefore you can, you can hedge or insure. Uncertainty is where you don't know that. And Keynes's great theory was that when you have a lot of uncertainty, you won't get uh, entrepreneurs employing people investing, and that has a positive uh, uh, effect, a uh, feedback effect, which can create a slump. And we have in, in finance theory, uh, we've sort of, if there's problems in economics, it's much worse in finance theory because we, we assume that if we can't measure it and it's not simple, we just ignore it. And we also have this sort of very bizarre uh, idea that risk is somehow linear. It's almost by definition that, um, you know, whatever, however risky, say, the U.S. Treasury market is, emerging markets by definition are riskier. I mean, this is palpable nonsense when you think about the big structural problems in the global economy. And I spent some time talking about this. We have two huge structural problems, neither of which um, has really affected us yet because their problems are still building. Uh, even through 08. The first is this massive amount of debt in the developed world, which is still growing. And the second is the, uh, as a result of the dysfunctional international monetary system, or the lack of one, uh, we have this huge flow of savings from the high saving emerging countries into uh, the developed world. And, you know, there's two orders of magnitude more money that might flow away from the developed world back to emerging markets if there's a real crisis. Two orders of magnitude flow more than the flow that might go the other way. And yet we have all this nonsense about taper tantrums and, you know, uh, the idea that QE has had a big impact on the emerging markets. It's as nothing compared to the money that, em that emerging market central banks are still piling in to, to the West. So is, is, is that the sort of the set of assumptions that would be the precursor to developing um, a finance and investment theory uh, in the face of uncertainty when we don't know probability distributions? Mm. Do we then build scenarios around things like funds flows? We have to like do that? scenarios. We have to, there are a couple of things that I've been told are sort of fairly new in the book. Um, one is the importance of uh, thinking strategically 
daily, not once a year. You know, when the troops are coming into Belgium in 1939, you don't say, oh, I'm not going to change my asset allocation because we don't have our meeting for another three months. You basically grab everything that's not fixed and you run. Uh, so that's the first idea, thinking strategically all the time. Uh, finance theory is a proxy for thinking. You know, um, it's better to think, particularly if your theory is faulty. The other idea is that, uh, which I think is fairly new, is the importance of the structure of the investor base as a key to understanding what may happen next, in particular, uh, what liquidity may do. And I have three warning signals of a potential systemic problem. One, a homogenous investor base, which means they might all change their mind at the same time. And we've seen that plenty of times. Secondly, um, a misperception of risk, which might suddenly change. So calling something risk-free for a start is an abuse of English language. So that's a misperception of risk. It may or may not change soon, but that is uh, falls into that potential category. And thirdly, leverage. Leverage not necessarily in the asset, but leverage somewhere which affects the behaviour of the investors. And you know, these are the sort of warning signals that we should be looking at. But to answer your initial question, I'm afraid I don't have a theory. Um, you know, Keynes's great book was 80% hatchet job on Marshall's economics and 20% beautiful theory. I don't have the beautiful theory. I just say, the theory isn't working, you've got to think. And thinking is hard work. I'm very sorry about that, but that's what we have to do. And what I really would like is to get macroeconomics and what we know from politics and, and history back into the front end of asset allocation, as opposed to something we either com ignore completely or maybe ask one of the managers right down uh, the bottom of the pile to think about. Okay, let's, let's latch on to that then. Absent a theory. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about fiscal repression. Financial repression. Financial repression yes. and, and what that means um, for emerging markets, for currencies and the like. Yes. Basically, um, after the Napoleonic Wars, 1820-ish, uh, England has a, had a debt to GDP of about 240%. And using you know, uh, what we might call austerity policies, uh, basically doing it through fiscal policy, we got that to a reasonable level over about 80 years by the end of the century. Uh, that is not going to happen this time, politically completely unfeasible, you know. Uh, so in the 20th century we have two ways to get rid of this debt. Both involve having uh, inflation higher than the interest rate. In other words, eroding the value of the debt over a couple of decades. One is obvious, it's called inflation, and that was very successful in the 70s. But that's not the preferred route because it's all out in the open. We know we're being robbed and there's a lot of political turmoil, a lot of uh, uh, you know, uh, unpleasantness. Uh, the other, which was so successful after the Second World War, both in getting the Second World War debts down in the United States but also in Europe, is called financial repression. And it's defined as any policy which captures domestic savings in order to finance the government and to do so at a lower cost than would otherwise be possible. In other words, low interest rates. You combine that with an inflation rate of 2 or 3% higher and you can achieve that. And that's exactly the policy of governments today. And whereas quantitative easing was a, a method to bail out the banks in the absence of a proper fiscal authority action to seize the banks and fire managers and, and fix them up quickly for political reasons, ideological bank lobby reasons, we didn't do that. Uh, QE was originally to save the banks, not to stimulate the economy by the way. Uh, that was uh, an important part of the rhetoric to avoid people panicking, but it wasn't the real story. That QE policy is now also morphed into a second function, which is trying to rob people. And we know from behavioural finance that people don't mind being robbed gradually, especially if it's other people's money. So a central bank, the notion of central bank independence, an insufficient mechanism to mitigate the robbing by the government? 
Well, whether a government, uh, whether a central bank is independent from the government or not doesn't really change the policy. Um, I think what is important to understand is that the optimal policy of central bankers in the West today is to bamboozle the investor into not realising that inflation is higher and certainly likely to be higher uh, in the medium to longer term uh, than the interest rate. And so the optimal policy, I would argue, is to change the signalling about what inflation and growth is going to be every six weeks or so. Does that sound familiar? It sounds a little familiar, so I think it sounds like uncertainty rather than risk. Yes, and, and actually uh, policy to generate the uncertainty, to confuse people. First, by you know, saying that the emperor has uh, lovely new clothes and, and trying to uh, uh, avoid the uncertainty positive feedback mechanism Keynes talked about if you actually say, if we don't save the banks, we're getting depression. So letting the markets think that QE is actually about saving the economy, just letting that view uh, grow when it's not really about that at all. Uh, and by the way, that's why you shouldn't be worried about emerging markets and, and US interest rates. A lot of them, not, hardly any of that money actually got to emerging markets. A lot of it never even got to the US economy. It just went around in a circle and went back to the central bank. Um, and of course, the other reason is the flow coming from emerging markets to the developed world is still much larger, even today, than the flow going the other way. So the idea that one should be worried about emerging markets because interest rates are going up in the US is just nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. But the, the, the idea of, of financial repression you know, is a, a, um, a, a vulnerable one. Um, and we could easily see you know, a bond market crash as bond markets you know, see that they are uh, not getting paid and they demand higher interest rate at some point, possibly when growth properly uh, recovers, maybe in two years if the US consumer by then is properly delevered. And it's at that point we might have a bond crash, you know, which makes, uh, by the way, not in emerging markets, a bond crash in the HIDICs, the heavily indebted developed countries, uh, which makes 08 look like a practice run. And that's a scary scenario. And it's for these sort of scenarios, together with the, the sort of very scary scenarios, we might not get a gradual uh, uh, end to these monetary imbalances. In other words, we might have a sudden outflow of the emerging central bank money from, from the West. And that would be a 1971, when the dollar went from $35 an ounce uh, to, at its peak, about $194 an ounce in 74. Yes, other currencies fell as well, and there was inflation we didn't notice, but that is the sort of scenario uh, which we could have. In those scenarios, um, you're clearly much better off in the emerging markets. And so one of the reasons to invest in emerging markets today isn't just, you know, as a sort of marginal, you know, play and something which is just sort of at the edges of your horizon. It's fundamentally to reduce risk. What we saw in 08, we're going to see again. Highly levered economies have the characteristic that when there's a problem in one of them, all the asset classes which are highly levered, the correlations go to one, and, and they all go at the same time. And emerging markets are the places where you can escape that. Well, maybe not in the very short term, but you know, for serious investors who aren't you know, day traders, um, you know, they will, these, these are the economies which are really separate, really different from these levered uh, developed countries, and they are the ones that are better off. I mean, yes, China may only grow at 7%. You know, goodness me, isn't that terrible? You know, they're only going to double their GDP in 10 years. Um, I therefore can't possibly invest in China. You know, we, we have all sorts of excuses, one after the other, why we can't invest in emerging markets. There's a psychological need uh, to have a reason. Um, but that's what it is. It's prejudice, pure prejudice. If we actually look 
at the real risks and the real opportunities and the real benefits of actually getting access to the vast bulk of humankind that don't have a lot of the problems we have here, you know, we will actually see emerging markets as a way not only to reduce risk but actually to meet our liabilities in the future because in the future you know, cars will be made and sold uh, in, in emerging markets much more than here. The global price of those cars will be set there and that, if we want to buy a a car in 20 years in our retirement, that is therefore part of our liabilities today. If we don't invest in emerging markets, we are actually taking a gamble away from our liability structure defined in purchasing power. I think that's a very good way to view things, and you've given, given us a different way to be thinking about financial theory and investment theory as well as emerging markets, so thank you. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. To see our other multimedia products, visit us on cfawebcasts.org. Copyright 2014 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.